0: Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. All right, today we've got Charles Pulliam Moore on the line. Uh, Charles is a writer at io9 and Gizmodo, and he is a comic book aficionado. Charles, welcome to the show. How's it going? And do you go by Charles Pulliam Moore or Charles, Charles Pulliam?
1: I go by Charles Pulliam. Like It's just both. Like Charles Pulliam Moore is my full name, but Got it. Um, hyphens confuse people, so uh, <laughs> I, I tend to just let it uh, drop off from time to time.
0: Yeah, sometimes it's so. Charles Pulliam is also your handle as well. It's, it it's is easier. Because,
1: uh, Charles Pulliam Moore
0: was too long at the time.
1: And, yeah, you know, you know how social media is. The more, the more characters you give someone, the more likely they
0: are to. To mess it up. <laughs> right. There's a, um, a correlation, direct correlation to the longer your how many characters you have, and the, the in the fall off. Like for the longest time, like at Charles was being swatted on by this dude,
1: and like I through <laughs> the, like the better part of uh, my time in college, I would check in periodically just to. What, what do you mean by being swatted on? on? Um. So he was just like the account was there. It was just at Charles. Oh, squatted, him. squatted on. Okay. Yeah. And I was just like, my God, like, give it to me. And, like, it, this is right. Like I, I was in uh, undergrad uh, from uh, 2009, 2013. Um, and so as like a young journal student, I was just like lapping up everything that like my new, like, quote unquote, new media professors had to say. And they were all like, yeah. big on Twitter. And like, you want like your brand presence to be out there. Brand, brand, brand. Um, and so I was like, all right, cool. Like I want to be Charles on Twitter. And that was a, a goal um, and it never ended up happening. And then a couple of years ago, some dude named Charles ended
0: up working as an engineer at Twitter and now he has it. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's crazy. The whole squatter thing on the internet is really interesting. And I know from people that I know, I won't say names or anything, but I know for a fact that, you know, if you have a Twitter account and you're squatting, there's ways to get access to those for sure. If if there's I mean, like if there's no activity.
1: The easiest way to do it though is to just like Show up at a Twitter event where there are Twitter employees and make nice, and then ask because it's not hard to do. It's just there's no like there are protocols that are supposed to work, but I we're getting into a rabbit hole of
0: which (laughs) brings me to a question that I was going to ask. We can just jump into it. I see that you're verified, so that's like an elusive, interesting thing that a lot of people don't know how to get that verification. Is there a story behind that? Did you fill out a form? Did you just meet the right Twitter employee? What's the story behind I that? I mean,
1: it's, it's I, think it, I think it's pretty much like an open secret that a lot of, like, mo- the vast majority of people who are verified on Twitter are media people. Um, and it's really, once you start working for a publication that has a social media department that, you know, has a relationship with uh, the various social media platforms, which is to say that, you know, They've been to the office. They know people. Um, it's, you know, it's all it's a little smoke and mirrors. But yeah, like you get into a newsroom, it's not hard to get verified. And then it's all kind of just luck of the draw. You know, like, are you a, are you a YouTube personality? Are you a notable podcaster? Do people take note of what it is that you're doing on the internet? If so, it might happen. It might not. But also, I feel like at this point, you know, verification, what does it even mean? Yeah, um, no, lot for sure. A influential people on the internet. You know, their social media presences speak for themselves um, and verification means what, you know, you are connected in some way to somebody at Twitter HQ by a couple of different degrees,
0: you know? Have they started monetizing that feature? I feel like people would pay for that. Um, not to my knowledge. Okay. No, I think it's still very
1: much just kind of like a, a case by case uh-huh. basis thing. Um, and also, I feel like there's a growing... Not I don't I wouldn't go so far as to call it like a movement, but there's just like more and more people who are like, eh, ever you know these social media platforms. It's where we all are, but the platforms in and of themselves, you know, whatever marks of how to put, whatever whatever like marks of importance that they you know hold up as being important don't really mean anything.
0: We we started with a with a tangent, which is. T- Totally welcome, but again, we're here to talk about you and your career. So yeah. let, let's start with who you are. You want to just introduce yourself and tell us, you know, we were just talking about your company. But we didn't even explain who you are and where you <laughs> work. So
1: yeah, um, yeah. So um, like we, like I, I introduced myself. My name's Charles Paulian Moore. Um, I am a uh, culture and news writer uh, for io9 and Gizmodo, mostly for io9, where we uh, cover genre. Uh, fiction Um, so like comic books uh, television shows movies books that kind of thing so i do everything from just you know writing up basic you know breaking news and then doing um you know thinky pieces about stuff um you know sort of like a cultural analysis
0: um, of the pop culture that we are all currently consuming and why that genre was that something that you sought out or did you fall into that
1: yeah, I, I like I've always loved comic books, but I didn't like I didn't set out to do this kind of work um, like way, way, way back when uh, I initially wanted to be a radio journalist. Um, that was sort of my first uh, path in life. I cut my teeth at my local NPR affiliate back in Washington, D.C., um, cool. and I really loved it. You know, I learned a lot of really valuable skills, just like editing um, in a newsroom that have served me to this day. Um, and as a young person, I, I figured, well, I like this so much. I might as well continue it on college. Um, and then being uh, in journalism school at that particular time was really odd because it was right at that point when major media companies were realizing that the, the way that news was being distributed, you know, via social media was changing the way that newsrooms were going to work. Right. One of the big, um, one of the big sort of like, um, banners they all sort of held over us was that everyone needed to be like a one-man band right everyone needed to be able to write a story report it out but you also need to be able to be on camera in front of camera you need to be able to shoot your own um you need to be able to like set tripod shoot yourself and then be able to bring it back into an editing room and then edit it and, you know have your package up and so that was kind of the headspace that i was in all throughout uh school and it was Stressful as hell, but also kind of useful, in that it kept my mind open about what kind of media I could eventually get into. And then through um, happenstance, I kind of bounced around a bit um, from site to site, you know, with internships and different jobs. And I eventually ended up here at IO9, which is uh, super cool.
0: And are you like you were saying? Are you doing all those different things? Are you shooting and editing yeah. and writing and?
1: No, okay. it's weird. Like the the skills have all like. They've proven themselves to be useful at various jobs in various ways. Um, I'm not doing, I'm not really doing as much. Um, I don't really do any video editing, like in a professional capacity anymore. Um, my first gig out of school, I was a videographer doing like Interesting. stuff. Or, um, yeah, it's, that's the, that's the thing. It's sort of when you, journalism school is a weird kind of, it's a weird experience in that it's not so much that you're going to learn um, specifically like how to write a story you're learning how to sort of look at the world through a certain perspective that allows you to be able to tell stories right and that's really sort of something that certain professors are great about conveying to you right like oh you know i'm only giving you a tool set that you have to go out into the world and use some aren't Um, and so just having all of (laughs) that like shit in my tool belt has been Really interesting and fascinating because even though I'm not doing like video work as much now, I still approach a lot of my work with that kind of like visual eye, right? So, right. my background in like video and audio contextualizes the way that I, um, you know, that I review or write about a movie like A Quiet Place, for example. I saw it last night. It's just sort of, ah, you know, I'm nice. Still
0: sort of I'm assuming you're working it. on a, an article about that, so I don't want to ask you about and <laughs>
1: spoil it. Have have a couple of ideas. Um, okay. I need to pitch in the morning. Yeah,
0: awesome. Um, I'm trying to think of the last movie I saw. What was oh uh, Ready Player One? Did you see that?
1: Okay, so I haven't seen it. Tell me, what what did you think about it? <sighs> uh,
0: so honestly, I didn't read the book, which is kind of like I think a sin Very as far as bring, bringing I think it you're up. The first person I've spoken. To <laughs> who's never? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I hadn't read the book, so going into it, um, I didn't have any biases. I thought it was fun. Um, Definitely didn't expect it to take place almost entirely in a, a CG world, uh, which I probably should have gathered from the trailer. But there was a lot of CG in there, um, and I'm not sure if it felt like a Steven Spielberg movie per se. But um, yeah, I enjoyed it. I I think,
1: like I think that the movie can actually stand from what I've heard. Like I like I, I read the book way, way, god years ago, and it's. Um, I don't know if you've heard some of the critiques about like Ernie Klein's weird deification of nostalgia. Uh, right. So there's like that, you know, that whole, that whole aspect of the book is quite gross and gatekeeper You know what I mean? It's sort of, um, it reduces what it means to be, um, a, a hero in this story down to your ability to like shoot off quotes. That's like, that's just ugh, whatever. Right. But the premise itself, um, that the world has been taken over by, you know, the mutant love child of Facebook and Twitter and <laughs> you know all the social media platforms, and it's all you know been subsumed into this you know virtual reality mega corporation that controls the global economy. That is an interesting premise, right? The idea that you know uh, a Steve Jobs like figure would you know give this um, would give the Oasis to anyone who managed to figure out the puzzle. That is a fascinating premise, um, in that if you actually, if you went about the story in sort of a more, in sort of a more (laughs) interesting and different way, like focusing the story on Wade Watts is boring, right? Wade Watts is not a very particularly compelling character. He is, I'm not, I wouldn't go so far as to say that he is just like Ernie Klein's wish fulfillment, but like, he's whatever, He's, he's a nothing person. Um, the book never sort of really explores the idea um, that the oasis is a massive, huge place where anybody has the potential to sort of do these things, that, and you know that Walt, Walt is that his name? I forgot. Uh, that he and his you know his comrades end up doing. Um, you know, there's all of these potential stories and ideas about. The nature of like identity and access and power in digital spaces that a story like Ready Player One could really explore in a fascinating way. Um, it just doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> and I from right I hear, people who've seen the movie is that um, even you know, obviously it's a it's a blockbuster movie. It's supposed to. It has to sort of fit a particular kind of form in order to work in you know in, in theaters. Um, I understand that it can't do all of those things, but even the basic idea. Of
0: like the oasis. It's like, oh, like that's um it's such a Right. You're introduced into this world that's vast mm-hmm. with all this potential, and then you're kind of whittled down into this very limited story and like yeah. th- uh, one small set of characters, but at the end of the day, like that that could be a Netflix series. That's what I wanna see. It's like where you could every oh, like it could be an anthology yeah. series. Oh, for people, sure.
1: People from everywhere exactly from different, um, you know, from different avenues. D. James Halliday, I think is his name, the creator of the Oasis. Um, From what I've heard, like, in the movie, there's never that, like, that very Steven Spielberg-y moment where the evil overlord or, you know, the symbol of power has that moment where they realize that they are the source of the evil and they sort of have not a redemptive arc but a moment of like reckoning where they come to grips with the fact that they are the evil apparently there's no like there's no yeah it's just like a it's like a one note yeah yeah it's a valid point like even if you're not gonna you know make a full-on critique of like of the fact that the oasis is you know the end result of capitalism you know at least have the guy feel a little bad for what he's done to the world because As best as I understand, the movie doesn't actually address the fact that the world is falling apart outside the Oasis. Like, It's all kind of going to shit, isn't it? Yeah,
0: it's an escapist kind of...
1: Yeah, and it's like, oh, the Oasis is open five days a week now. Oh, great. That's cool. Is that going to solve the world's problems? Is everyone going to suddenly go back and... You know fix the uh, God the decades of environment right recovery. it's
0: basically like, saying like you can you can only go on twitch uh five days a week instead of seven now uh, sorry. <laughs> right, um <right>, right. sorry <laughs> this is a, a super side note, but i someone at one of my last jobs did a like a brown bag keynote kind of thing about okay. why we haven't discovered aliens and okay. what one of the main reasons he referenced was that once a civilization gets so advanced it's not so much like based in the fact that like the the chances that like one society exists while the other society exists it's actually the fact that when a society gets that advanced that chances are that they're going to move towards instead of like space travel and leaving the planet they're going to live in that type of simulated experience and that is one of the reasons potential reasons why we haven't encountered aliens because rather than explore and like try all these crazy efforts to travel vast distances instead, it's just like, no, we're going to live this idealist, you know, it's much more attainable. Um, I mean,
1: I hadn't considered that, but I mean, it makes sense. Like that's interesting. yeah.
0: Um, Yeah.
1: It's a little, it's a little, um, a little nihilistic oh for sure i agree i don't feel like going out there it's literally <laughs> just like it's like ordering on seamless as opposed are going across <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is a valid fucking point um, <laughs> but yeah i don't know it was one of those movies where unfortunately without seeing the book can this exist on its own and i i don't know i, I need to think i need to read the, the about, i need to retroactively the thing read the book
1: what about the book is that it really is just like Nostalgia, for nostalgia's sake, you know, on, in a very surface kind of way. There's no exploration or discussion of what it means to deify the, you know, the the heroes of your of your childhood and sort of cling on to them in a way that's almost um, unhealthy. You know, James Halliday is um, a textbook case of a man, you know, who succumb to arrested development. Now to be fair, like he, you know, managed to take over the world in the process and become, you know, the richest man in history, but we're led to believe that, you know, he's a deeply broken man. Not to mention the fact that, like, his whole, like, his whole relationship with women is, like, deeply disturbing. And he's got, like, his, I was talking to a friend the other night and she was explaining to me that, um, in the movie, his whole Holiday, both Holiday and, um, Wade, what's his name? Wade's, like, um, one of their big drives in the movie is that they're like sort of like friend zoned by women in their lives and it's like that that really drives them forward and it's like dude like that's not i don't know if i don't want to see that like that's so ugh, god because when you see that on the screen you realize rather i think that there's a growing consciousness in audiences particularly like <laughs> the stereotypical like um, 18 to 45 like white male audiences that have sort of been the target audiences for like the vast majority of genre pop culture i think there's a growing consciousness amongst you know that population when a movie is really kind of sort of pandering to them in a way that is actually insulting you know what i mean oh for sure where, where when, when you see like a male mary sue on the screen you're like this is stupid like who who is this for Like, do you think that this is I'm assu- like obviously I'm assuming that this is what some other people may be thinking but I think that more and more folks are just sort of like no 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 don't, don't condescend to me like actually give me something to sink my teeth into that presumes that I have the ability to think about you know complex
0: characters who knows maybe that's not the case would you say that Stranger Things tried a lot of those lowest common denominator uh, elements oh let's take the Goonies and let's take like E.T. and let's take all the best or do you think that it's more advanced than that i
1: mean the duffer brothers have been fairly open about the fact that they are very much paying homage to all of you know the movies that define the 80s um there's actually you can find it on the internet if you can find the pitch document um that they initially brought to netflix Interesting. When the show was called montauk um and it's supposed to be set in montauk new york it's a basic packet that sort of outlines the show introduces you to the characters really sort of explains um the ethos that the show is going for and each of the sections is um you know just sort of like has a title and it has uh it has a photo from a classic horror film or um, so some of them are a little bit before uh the 80s but they're mostly 80s movies and they're really sort of these signposts as to what they're going for and so to that end i think that uh, the duffer there's a there's a slight difference between something like stranger things and ready player one because Stranger Things is being transparent about what it is, right? right. It's transparently being, it's more sort of homage isn't quite the right word, but sort of you know, some, some, something between like an homage and a recreation, right? That's that, right. It's know, purposeful. So it's, yeah. yeah, right. And it deconstructs and remixes, you know, those aspects of the source material in new and interesting ways, right? Whereas Ready Player One is literally just like, look at this thing that you know. Don't you like that? Don't you have a positive boost of adrenaline in your system right now? Okay, good. Now buy it on DVD. Like that's so... (laughs) Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure Ready Player One was pitched as a a movie and a book at the same time, or rather the movie was pitched before the book was done, um, which is not uncommon, right? That's not inherently a bad thing about a book. Whole, you know a movie based on a book but there's a way in which the film like everything about the marketing
0: or even the marketing run film just feels very soulless you know is that based um, on the limitations think. of the medium is there a reason why, why them no, okay i think it's because there's no story there um i think to be fair i
1: didn't really head up most of um, my site's coverage for Ray player one but i wrote up a post a couple of weeks ago about like the latest trailer drop and as i was watching the trailer i was like all right what's the headline gonna be um we were supposed to like talk about like writing process so this is just like a little a yeah. glimpse into part of how i go about just like basic new stuff so it's like for something you know how the trip, like the, the movie cycle works right the movie gets announced and like uh casting announcement instructor blah, blah 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 and then in the months leading up to the movie's announcement or release rather you get that trickle of Um, Instagram photos from the stars and then like behind-the-scenes photos and then like the poster pops up and then the trailers Um, And so as someone who like uh, it works in this space You build up like a low-level understanding of what's going on with a movie at any given point in time you know what I mean where even if you don't know the plot of a film you're like oh set and such who was cast um three months ago just got replaced and because actresses um are of a very particular type we can make assumptions rather we can make very safe assumptions about who she may be like be playing in the movie even though the casting announcement hasn't been made interesting anyway so to bring this back to ready player one um, not really writing about it but I'm watching all the trailers you know hearing about what's going on reading interviews that people are giving and I'm giving this trailer to write up you know it's just like the latest the, like the last trailer and the thing I'm like what sets this apart and the thing, and I was like huh this is the first trailer that actually like explains the plot of the movie right because it's a very simple and straightforward plot
0: oh yeah a very
1: simple program. get like get the keys it's yours that's it right? In my mind, explaining the plot along with those very, admittedly, like bold and gorgeous visuals that the movie has, that would have made an infinitely more powerful like first impression, as opposed to what we first got, which was it was pretty. It was um, you know, the pure imagination trailer. Which you know it's got that great arrangement, and you see like the Iron Giant, and you see Tracer running around, and you see artemis and whatever their other little code names are you see the little avatars and shit and you're like that's cute and all but what's happening what am i looking at i mean you're literally just looking at um where's waldo for all of your pop culture favorites right which is just you know just you're just having
0: you're just having information dumped on you with no kind of context and it was all just very kind of yeah and why didn't you write about ready player one is that in your process do you cover specific movie do you how are you how do you get your like assignments and choose what Uh, you're
1: it's usually sort of you know we're all we all have calendars about like what's coming up when um everyone sort of gravitates towards the things that like light them up the most um one of the weird um one of the weird myths about being a pop culture writer that Commenters seem not to understand. We don't watch everything, right? Um, We don't watch everything because we don't like everything. (laughs) A lot of, and I think a lot of more, I wish more reviewers would talk about this. Reviewers who were just like, oh, this just really isn't a show for me. A lot of us will be like, all right, like, I know that if I were to be writing about this, I would be unfairly biased against it. Not like biased, but you're like, it's not speaking to me. And that doesn't necessarily do that thing justice. so like on our team, we talk amongst ourselves, We're like who has, who has an interest in this, who has like the strongest angle for something. Um, and then obviously, once everyone has like seen a particular show or a film, if somebody has something they want to write, you know, if someone has a particular angle that they, you know, they're really itching for, obviously, they're free to do so. But it's usually just sort of, you know, who's been paying attention to this?
0: Um, you know, who has a personal relationship to it, that kind of thing. When you come into that meeting, is it, pertaining to a particular topic one of the great things about um writing about genre
1: fiction is that there's literally so much of it that we're really kind of given um free reign to explore and find the things that we find interesting that aren't necessarily the most popular things which ultimately i think is one of the things that most of us really want to do um you know with our jobs is to find things that are really great that you might not might not necessarily pick up on and share them with a wider audience um obviously like our job first and foremost is to report what's going on um you know so when there's you know news about you know who's going to be and what what's coming up when obviously we are beholden to write about that
0: but um for me personally what i've been what am i writing about right now um, hmm. yeah are you allowed to talk about what you're currently working on or how does that? Yeah, is that yeah sure I mean we think like people shouldn't give away their like trade secrets and shit but, <laughs>
1: um, we, I, you might have heard about this tiny little indie movie about to come out called <laughs> Avengers Infinity War <laughs> uh, whenever one of these Marvel movies comes out it's a lot like um, it's like when a blue whale dies in the ocean and then like the sharks swarm upon it to like get their chunk of meat you have to sort of uh, you have to find your. You have to find your way in, right? You have to sort of find like what is the thing about this big event that you have to say that's going to be interesting. Um, so obviously, we're going to have our review up. Um, that's a given. But the thing that I'm doing right now that I'm really into, that's sort of really consuming my headspace, is going back and um, taking stock of the Marvel Cinematic Universe up to this point. And really sort of getting my feelings and thoughts about the whole project. So,
0: so that I can just to kind of like through, dive into yeah. that, you're creating a, a map of all the Marvel content that's come out so far or?
1: Not so much a map, but just, just sort of like a look back.
0: Okay. Um, I think every,
1: I think, you know, all the sites, like pretty much, you know, any site that writes about comic book movies, we're all sort of shifting into that retrospective space because this is, you know, it's all been building up to this. Um, and so our, our retrospectives all have to, you know, it can't all just be like a, our favorite Marvel movies or our favorite villains. Like that's so, okay, sure, whatever. You have to you have to
0: dig a little bit deeper at this point, you know? Definitely. All right, scratch that question, Harry. I was joking that I was going to ask you what your favorite Marvel movie is, but we won't do that. <laughs> we, 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 we won't do that. Sorry. We won't do that. Uh, so let's take it back. Talking about you and your writing, when did you kind of get into this originally? And were you reading comic books as a kid? Were you studying, were you reading books about writing? Did you know you wanted to do this?
1: Um, I Comic books and I go way, way back. Um, I've always been a big Marvel fan. Um, I think it shows in my writing. I tend to, that's like another example of, how we divvy up the work. Everyone sort of just has their, their jam that they're into. And like Marvel was always my thing. Uh, the X-Men were sort of my entree to comics. Um, they didn't, although like growing up, I didn't really ever think about, it's weird. I I think all kids dream about like writing comic books and drawing them. Yeah. Um, I had those like kid dreams, but I never like had them very seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Like I really, for the longest time I had no idea what I wanted to do my life. Um, it was just sort of like, not bumbling along, but just sort of like doing the thing, you know, going to school getting, getting solid grades, thinking about what I was going to do with my life. Um, and then it really was my first internship in high school at the radio station that kind of set me on that journalist, uh, journalism path. Um, I'd been flirting with the idea of going into entertainment law.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been a very different path for sure. Yeah,
1: very much so. <sighs> I thought about it, uh, then thought better of it and said, nah, <laughs> uh ended up going uh going to j school and i really thought i was gonna be like a video editor for the longest time uh that was really sort of like my like shit um and then you know you the market was just like full of young recent graduates who were all like i know final cut <laughs> um
0: and yeah uh, film great. film's a tough it's a tough world
1: but like everybody like everybody's just out here struggling trying to make it and i i totally get it i was i was right there with them i'm still shit i'm still doing it. Um But the video stuff just kind of petered out. And then I ended up getting, weirdly enough, I ended up coming to NPR as an intern where I, uh, NPR and Slate were sort of close together, but there I was doing um, like blogging, blogging, or rather writing on the internet. Um, And it was sort of like getting, it was shifting away from doing video work and like audio stuff to blogging on the internet that really, it was then that I kind of was like, oh yeah, like I can still do all of these, these things the The process is different, obviously, um, in terms of putting those stories together, but this, the basic skill set, you know, it's all sort of there,
0: you know what I mean? What is your actual process for writing as far as like, are you, you know, writing on note cards? Are you, uh, can you walk us through when you get a story to to um, release?
1: Yeah, for some, I mean, it's, yeah, for, for things that are sort of more my essays, it's always sort of, always different um the best ideas that i always have come to me very um, spontaneously usually when i'm like usually when i'm at the gym honestly like <laughs> usually when i'm like at the gym just listening to a podcast that i'm not paying attention to where it's just like voices in the back of my head and i'm sort of lost in my own little um world um something will pop up to me and i'll like jot it down into my phone and then come back later and then we have pitch meeting um at work uh then you know we usually end up getting assigned to things that we pitch, um, particularly when they're the, when they're those kinds of ideas—the ones that come to you when you're not actually at work thinking about work, the ones that um, present themselves to you almost fully formed, apropos of nothing. Um, and then, for me personally, it really is just the first thing I do when I'm writing about, like, let's say, uh, an issue of a comic book. Right, four months ago, I wrote this thing about uh, the current run on Venom, uh, Marvel's Venom. And how it's actually a really uh, a really dark, heartbreaking story about an emotionally codependent relationship. Um, Interesting. Everyone knows Venom is like, you know, the big hulking um, enemy uh, that Eddie Brock becomes to face off against Spider-Man. But in his current incarnation, you know, Eddie Brock has really kind of chilled out. He's really trying not to be a villain anymore, and the Venom symbiote has gone through a whole variety of different other hosts besides him, who've like put him through the ringer, right, emotionally and psychically. Like, also, the Venom isn't evil anymore; he's just vicious, and he's misunderstood. And he, uh, the symbiote, and Eddie like need each other, right? They have this really kind of uh, unhealthy need to be uh, attached to one another, physically and psychically. Um, that manifests itself in really harmful ways for both of them. Anyway, so like I wrote, I was like, oh, like that's cool as fuck, right? Like this is this character who we associate with like huge muscles and like breaking things and being scary. But the story, the way, rather the way that the character is being used here is to tell a very particular kind of story about a relationship that like objectively speaking um, is framed as being very like queer, right? Which is super fucking cool. Um, but so to yeah. write about that. Um, it requires that, like you can't just read the one issue. You have to read like the whole arc, and then you have to go and sort of do. Uh, you have to build out the context in which the characters exist. Like you can read, you can read a solid, you know, ten comic books, right? You get a like a whole two arc of a particular series, but it, it really is sort of you have to look at the long journey and trajectory that a character's been on to sort of substantiate the arguments that you want to make about them, and oftentimes you know, you have to do that in order to really buff out that core idea out. Because my first, like, my the, my first immediate thing is, like, looking at the cover, seeing, like, Venom licking Eddie's face you know, like, half <laughs> the comic, it's, like, them in, like, the bedroom, right? And my immediate, like, primal reaction was, like, oh, well, like, that's, like, Pinky, like, what's that about? Like, that's not subtle at all. Like, you're clearly trying to, the story's clearly trying to convey a particular kind of energy here, like, yeah. then you have to read yeah. deeper into it, and then in order to really make whatever you read that next level mean anything? You have to broaden, you know. You have to broaden the space in which you're really sort of thinking about the characters. Um, and so, when I'm writing, oftentimes the first thing that, i like, the thing that I'm doing, in, you know, first forty-five minutes to an hour is just like consuming more stuff, right? Right. Just like taking notes, like refamiliarizing myself with things, um, seeing if what I'm writing has been written already, right? Like that's the shit that no, like we all live in fear of, but it happens.
0: You think that like so Google that's like a it, that looks like a literal Google search where you're searching right, for you'd it. Be, okay. you'd,
1: you'd be shocked wow. the number of times that people seemingly don't have they forget how Google works, um, <laughs> and then you know rewrite something that you've written that you know something that isn't necessarily news, but something that is more essay driven. Um, rewrite will rewrite and be like, "Oh my god, look what I found out!" And you're like, uh-huh, yeah. and, <laughs> "Uh huh, yeah." You know, the writing is just like half the battle. There's the um, getting your assets together. Um, figuring out, you know, which pictures to use, like what your captions are going to say, like it's all. Um, I feel like a lot of people like oh, blogging isn't a real job. Like blogging can be very easy. Like there are days where you're just like such and such has died. <laughs> like, <laughs> you hop on to Getty, you get the you get a nice photo, you slap that thing into the CMS, and you hit publish, right? Right. You, you know, attribute to the AP, and you're done. Like yeah, that's real easy. Um, but there are so many other things that go into the way that we put stories together just in terms of being able to present not just the story itself, but to really sort of present like an environment to give you like the maximum impact of what we're trying to get across. I wish more people knew, but uh, whatever. It's all good. We all complain about shit. You.
0: you hate going into comic book stores. I read an article about it. I sure do. Yeah. That was the subject. <laughs> and, are, and, 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 and that's historical or that you, you still feel that way? Um, I, I, I mean, like, I'll go into them
1: um sure i'll go into a comic store if i have to um but i I prefer not to i just don't like being in them it makes me uncomfortable um comic book stores have never felt like i don't know like stores in my mind like a store is a store i'm not in a store to hang out right like i'll like i'll spend some time browsing um but like a comic book store is not a library (laughs) but more than that um i didn't have like friends that got me into comics you know what i mean like i just sort of like accidentally gravitated towards them like in the library a little bit. So going to going into a comic book store meant like going with my mom. Got you it. You know? And it, and I was like a shy kid, so I wasn't that kid who'd be like, hey there, what are you reading? Let's be friends. You're not I mean, geeking
0: out and playing Dungeons and yeah, Dragons yeah. in the back. No. <laughs>
1: you know, like that's like that's that's a whole other thing. But like the way that the stores <laughs> are, they're not In my experience, they're not always great about like giving kids entry points to like find what they're interested in or rather to discover new things. It's very much you have to know what you're into already and have to be able to speak the language. You have to be very like well versed in the parlance. Otherwise, you're sort of, you know, you're shit out of luck. And I was just like, yeah, it's not inclusive at all no and then it's you know then you can get down like that's sort of like a social issue with it but then you can get to the whole problem with the way that stores can be laid out sometimes right the
0: customer Um, journey and and
1: yeah Yeah, and by the end you just i I still to this day get like low-key anxiety When I'm in a store and I'm like, oh my god, no, no, is it alphabetical or is it some weird like Dewey Decimal System variant? Just, just give me the book.
0: How do you feel about stores with no signage? Like Apple is very big on no signage. Just like you walk in and
1: the thing. I wish more comic book stores were like Apple stores. Actually, interesting, which is to say, open spaces, put everything on a wall, right? Make there like have there be spaces throughout a store where people are supposed to hang out, where it's
0: obvious out. that those are meant to be used for the, right. that purpose. Yeah,
1: and I don't know that those would necessarily be physical books because obviously they would fall apart. I don't know if said that like oh, get like iPads laying around everywhere, but have some kind of mix of media where people can peruse the collection of the store, and then have employees wandering around the store being. Helpful, but not overbearing.
0: You know what I mean? I think that's the key. Yeah. I think it's the employee experience.
1: There's a very particular balance that you have to strike. Um, Also like in my mind, every comic book store's like wet dream is to have like customers come in who are like, hi, I'd like to sign up for a subscription, right? Like I want to, I want books coming to you regularly that I'm going to pay for right now. That's like the dream, you know, um, most people who come into comic book stores who wander in don't know that they can ask for a subscription, but in a more Apple store like environment, you know what I mean? Where the, we'll call them, you know, the the geniuses and the associates, um, they can upsell you on that kind of thing. They can help you find a series that you're really into. Let's say that you read, God, let's say you read something really wild. Like, um, like an issue of extreme x-men from the from the mid-2000s right and you're like oh man i really liked it when emma frost dumped scott summers and you know someone's like all right like let's help you find some more shit like let's do like drama do you like romance or are you just into what emma frost has going on do you like boring characters like scott summers right right
0: i like and this get, it's know? like reinventing the comic book uh, store experience this is great
1: yeah And it's, you know, it's sort of, it's all based around this idea of like discovery and exploration. And in doing so, that's where I think there's the opportunity for the creation of that nostalgia that people talk about. Because like the whole nostalgia that people have for comic book stars, I, I get it. I'm sure it's real. I'm sure you feel it. It all sounds like bullshit to me. It's like, oh, man, I miss hanging out in comic book stores for hours with all my friends. And we were just trading comics and talking about, and It's just like, where are your parents? and what world do you in? <laughs> just out stores for hours? That's so, like, good for you. Yeah. That doesn't, that doesn't at all sound like reality to
0: me. And I think I can agree with you. Like, when I was going, it was the same thing. My dad would drop me off every Friday, and I would go there. And, and it was intimidating. It was a smaller type of store. It was like a suburban, you know, little shop small ones yeah oh totally yo <laughs>
1: months ago, i bought an issue of gem and the holograms which is absolutely fucking fantastic everyone should be reading it um so basic premise they are a bunch of teen girls who become rock stars thanks to the use of like hyper futuristic holographic technology it's sentient and its name is synergy and it's a whole i think hannah montana but slightly futuristic <laughs> but also set but set in the 80s but uh, it was recently revived as a really great comic book series. Um, and they are very, you know, it's like punk rock Lisa Frank on the cover, right? Which I think is great. But I recently in a store buying an issue. And when I'm in a comic book store, I will admit, I can be that shitty customer who's like on their phone. Like I'm doing the thing, right? Like I, I know the motions. I know how to pay with a debit a car, but I'm not like making the most earnest effort to be interactive. The cashier and the dude look at the issue of books. Like it was that and like, I don't know some like a bunch of other stuff and the dude like looked at the thing and laughed and i'm like what is your problem like bruh like i'm trying to like i will leave this store like what is this what is this condescension right and it's like little things like that i don't even know that people necessarily know that they are they don't necessarily know the energy that they're giving off or the messages that they're sending through something as simple as you know just not speaking in small stores right um i used to for a very brief point in my life i lived in new jersey um, I don't like to talk about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there was a comic book store though, um, in, the, in the in like this in the in the town square and I went in a couple of times. It was one of those small claustrophobic stores where it was the owner who would just like sit behind his desk or rather the the front desk and um, a friend of his would occasionally be in there and it would either be they were there talking or he would just be there sitting in silence, just like reading. And like going in and mind you, I'm a grown man, right? Going into the store was so awkward because it was, it was like going to somebody's house. You know what I mean? It was like, the place is like packed with books, toys, and all other kinds of shit. And this dude is pretending to read, but
0: also like low-key looking at you to make sure that you're not stealing anything. And you're like, bro, I don't want to talk to you. This is awkward. I feel like Come all know. comic book stores are like that. Except maybe yeah. Mid- Midtown Comics is like a different experience because it's a bigger operation. One of the few like fantastic experiences
1: I've had in a comic book store, um, Amalgam in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, it's this relatively new uh, comic book store. It's the only comic book store on the East coast that's owned by a black woman. Um, and it is equal parts cafe and comic book shop, which is absolutely fantastic. And the thing that it does that I wish more comic, like, more stores understood, you have to give people space to move. Like it is so, I understand that you are a retail space and you are there to move product to, you know, make money and afford your rent. But at the same time there, the thing perhaps like the thing that like kills me the most about comic book stores. are the people who get right up on the wall, like where the books are and they just stand there, they stand there blocking the space so that other people can't see other people can't grab a book when you have more space, people aren't as inclined to like huddle. You know what I mean? They're, mm-hmm. They move, they explore, they're able to see what's there. And Amalgam does
0: that so well. Interesting. So more so yeah. Yeah. I can't remember the last time I went into a comic store. I need to, I guess you don't need to these days.
1: Sometimes it's like it's worth it to to go and sort of like chat people up. Like I'll go sometimes just to pick a boy or you know pick up a pack of Pokemon cards and just flip through you know whatever. Just because we get inundated with emails and stuff, sometimes it's nice to just you know be browsing through a rack and see a cover that looks weird and be like, I don't know what the fuck this is about, but I'm gonna read it. Nice.
0: Um, yeah. Do yeah. you? So, okay. So you you were writing for a company, other companies. Do you write for yourself? Oh goodness, do I write for myself? Um, I do. Um, all of my personal writing
1: I keep in a notebook. Um, my personal writing doesn't really exist on the internet because I don't think it needs to. <laughs> me. Um, uh, I don't. Admittedly, I don't do enough. That was sort of one of my things that I really wanted to prioritize this year was actually to get out and create more. Um, just because one of the weird. Uh, The benefits of being in this line of work is that i'm constantly talking to creators and people who are making things um and i think that we all get into this business because part of us you know uh, wants to do that on some level part of us would love to do that and you know interviewing comic book artists and writers and like actors and you know writers you're just like oh no like i need to be doing this too
0: right Um, so so in your industry would you say there's a lot of uh, writers who are pursuing creative endeavors as well and is that a conflict of interest no i mean i, I would, ne- would never call something
1: like that a conflict of interest i think that you know mm. reporters and writers understand that we are not our jobs and that part of you know our emotional well-being is being able to go out into you know our lives and do things that don't have anything to do with you know our job what was cyclops right about <sighs> you knew that oh, yeah. you knew this question was coming I mean, I I honestly did not. Um, <laughs> so, like, let me ask you, how? What's your what's your familiarity slash relationship to with the X Men?
0: Uh, read a lot of it when I was younger. Watched some movies here and there, but not okay. hardcore. Right. Okay. So, so Cyclops is right. Goes back to
1: the relatively recent major event in Marvel's comics where the Avengers and the X Men fought. Um, as their want to do this particular time it was because God, there's so much there's so much backstory um basically like you know the phoenix right phoenix force. Uh-huh. Okay. so the phoenix force had been wished out of existence by the scarlet witch after the scarlet witch had um oh no i'm sorry not the phoenix force mutants rather had been wished out of existence by um the scarlet witch after um, she had warped reality because of a whole other thing uh, basically the entire world the mutant population was reduced down to 198 mutants. Um, and that made mutants sort of like a super, super, super minority and put them in danger of extinction. They're always, they're always you know, of extinction, but this was a very literal uh, moment for it. Anyway, um, fast forward to so also so like after this happens, mutants like stop being born. You know the mutants are freaking out. Like we don't understand what's happening. And the weird thing was that at the time, the thought was that Marvel was sidelining the mutants because they didn't have the rights to the, they didn't have the film rights. They were still the fox at the time. Anyway, in the books, um, there was an arc afterwards where mutants, rather a mutant. The mutant messiah is born. Girl named Hope, um, and she sort of becomes the focus of a number of conflicts in Marvel's comics because people don't necessarily know what she means, but she pretends. The danger that everyone recognizes in her is that she might be the next host of the Phoenix Force, which ends up being true. Right, Phoenix comes back to Earth, and rather, it's making its way back to Earth, and everyone's worried about what's going to happen when it gets there. Um, and Cyclops was right, um, is. A reference to um, the quote "Magneto was right." Cyclops was right. Refers to the conflict, rather the disagreement that Captain America has with Cyclops. It all boils down to like Cyclops. whose whole thing was like, "Listen, dude, we know that you're worried about the Phoenix Force coming back, but we are like mutants are going extinct. Let it hit Hope. She's going to be fine. She's going to fix everything." Cyclops was like, or rather, Captain America was like, "Nah, dude, you've seen the Phoenix Force before. It wrecks everything. We have to destroy <laughs> it." Um, and so what ends up happening is Iron Man splits the Phoenix into five parts and it gets into five different people and they end up raising the world. Cyclops is like, what did I tell you? I told you to leave it the fuck alone. <laughs> um, and it, is, uh, it has been one of the few moments in Cyclops' history where he has been, he has been the competent leader that he has always supposed to have been. And uh,
0: we take our wins when we can find them. You mentioned earlier that you're currently reading the Scarlet Witch series. Can you tell us about why uh, you're, you've chose to read that now?
1: Um, I'm actually rereading in preparation for um, Infinity War, just because I am a big Scarlet Witch fan, um, so I am looking forward to seeing just what all happens to her in, in the movie. Um, particularly, and then I also just want to see like, if at all the movie is going to set up any of the more interesting things about their relationship um, that we haven't
0: really seen. Uh, come
1: over from the comics.
0: Going back to our initial conversation, when there's a comic and then there's a movie coming out, do you have your concerns that the movie's not going to do justice to the comic book? And on that note, are comic books these days influenced by movies as well? Or is it the other way around?
1: I think one of the things that I've really prioritized as a writer in this space is to really come to see comic books and the movies that are based on them as discrete works of art that have to work on their own, right? Um, Obviously, being familiar with both, there are certain parts of both that you can't help but see in one another. They're impossible to ignore. But when I'm writing about a film or a television show, I really do try not to compare them to the book so much because at the end of the day, these things are made for broad audiences. Um, There's uh, this woman I follow on Twitter, The Trudes, who has this really great tweet. She's like, listen, these movies are for everybody. These movies aren't for nerds. The movies, you know, Black Panther didn't make a billion dollars because nerds it right. over and over again. People might want to, you know, take credit for it that way, but that's not true. It's because, like, people who had never read a comic book in their life went to go see this movie perhaps multiple times. Um, that's a really good point. And, and it's a testament that, like, the movie, it works on its own. You don't, like, there's, it helps to read um, Black Panther comics to really enjoy the movie. You don't have to right you have everything that you need for the movie to sort of work um, and so uh, i also think that when you when you do a comparison thing you're only setting yourself up to be upset there is no i don't think that there is ever any work that can truly capture the perfect essence of the source material um, in either direction i don't think that books based on movies are ever quite as good as the movies and i don't think that movies based on actually i take that back not quite as good that's the wrong way of thinking about them There's different Right, they're related to one another, but even though that they are different manifestations of the same idea, it does not mean that they have to be the exact same execution of that idea. Does that make
0: sense? Yeah, definitely. So, I mentioned it in my email, but I don't know if you're into it, like a kind of a writing, no, writing f- challenge, or so... I will say, yeah, um,
1: a piece of work that I, I thi- I've I think been thinking about it a lot, um, kind of in that capacity, like, how could this be better? Right. Um, I've been going back and thinking a lot about Orson Scott Card recently. So Orson Scott Card is the author of um, the book Ender's Game. The book and the movie are about um, a futuristic Earth where the Earth has been attacked multiple times by these aliens referred to as the buggers, right? They have these complex, you know, there are these insectoid-like bugs that come from another planet in spaceships and they attack um, in swarms. And they have these complex very intricate battle plans that the humans recognize as being plans, right? They're not just being swarmed. They're being strategically attacked. And so right. they develop, they, they fight, you know, they send their fighter jets off and they do as best as they can. And what ends up happening is a very pivotal battle is won by this guy, major Rackham. Um, who is able to hit like a mothership and shut them all down because they seem to function as a hive mind. And what happens is the earthlings are like, all right, these things are going to come back. We have to get ready. And what they do as a society is they start recruiting savant-like children to send them into what's called battle school, where they are prepared to become um, the ultimate uh, strategic military thinkers, or if and when the time comes when the buggers come back to attack them. And the book is about this little boy, Ender, who is a very empathic, um, who is recruited into the school and ends up becoming the you know, the, the chosen one. But what ends up happening is uh, Ender becomes, his name is Andrew. He ends up going by Ender as a nickname because his little sister can't pronounce his name. But the name comes on to take a second meaning because the person who ends the war against the buggers by a essentially committing genocide right he kills all of them not knowing that when you kill the he ends up killing the queen and turns out that he's eliminating the entire race the entire race was literally just basically one hive mind that didn't understand that when it was killing fighter jets it was killing individual people anyway the thing about orson scott card is really interesting fascinating writer um huge fucking homophobe right huge bigot has like weird politics and is basically just like a gross human being and it's one of those things where i remember as a kid growing up reading his books and being like this is amazing and then you know the time comes in every person's life where they learn that their heroes are not necessarily right. people, and it really like broke my heart but i say all of this to say that i've been thinking specifically about one of the latter books in the series um where ender it's in the future and ender is really sort of trying to reconcile with the idea that he was responsible for the elimination of one of the few sentient races in the galaxy. And he's trying to atone for it um, while working with some anthropologists on another planet where they found uh, one of the next sentient species. And it's a really interesting book about what it means to be, um, an anthropological presence coming from a position of power. Discovering, you know, "quote unquote," discovering a new society, and what responsibility you have to really let that society remain
0: intact um, without interfering is, and without contaminating them. Yeah.
1: So the book is actually really all about the importance of um, wanting to learn—not to learn about, but to learn from—that's um, really sort of what the book is championing. But all of that, like, messaging comes from Ender himself, who was like a white guy on right? the planet. <laughs> The planet happens to be a colony of what used to be uh, Portugal, I think. And so it's all just kind of—it's all just kind of like—it's a book that really could stand to have um, a second run in terms of just like making Ender less of a Mary Sue. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where you a hero doesn't have to be as perfect as he is made out to right. be. Right. Interesting. If I had my druthers, it would also be completely divorced from Orton Scott Card entirely, but that's just not really within the realm of possibility. <laughs> and,
0: and I hope that these days that the characters that we're seeing are just in general not always going to be like that, because I feel like that's historically kind of been, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to write the story. Who's the yeah, main right, character right, going to be? Okay, that makes right, sense. And, you,
1: know, you see in Ready Player One with Wade, and um, but you, you, know, you look at a movie, you know, to bring it back to Black Panther, you see Black Panther... You see T'Challa. You see, you know, the entire cast are a kind of hero that we haven't seen um, for the most part in these films. Um, And we shall see what become, like, what comes next. What you know, what comes in the wake of this movie's success. Um, But I think, I think it's safe to say that we are shifting out of space um, writ large, where you know, white guys are. We are supposed to be able to immediately identify with white guy because white guy is white guy
0: yeah totally so um last question i'm just curious because i'm pretty sure i saw at least a mention in your articles about westworld are you excited yeah yeah um what you have any kind of hopes kind of thoughts rumors Well,
1: i, I like i'm very much like a i just want to like lay back i want you to like reveal yourself to me and like give me these plots twists and these turns Show me who's a host and who's not. Right? right. Is, Berner, is Bernard? Is Bernard going to take his face off? Like, what's up? Uh, <laughs> Except for those samurais? I, I mean, like, Shogun World is, is going to be a thing. Yeah, I'm super. Actually, it's interesting. I watched the original Westworld movie for the first time a couple of weeks ago.
0: It's fucking fantastic. Like Westworld as it is on HBO is a very different. You're talking movie about the original or film from like the '70s, yeah. okay? I've never yeah, seen from it. The 70s. Yeah,
1: it's very. It's nothing, I won't say it's nothing like the show, but it isn't, you know, sci fi, the sci fi of the 70s wasn't anything like today. It is very much like, oh, like this is people playing in a Western, but mm-hmm. it's robots. But it's such a fascinating concept. It's a great um, concept. It's executed so well, like in that movie. To see it, you know, sort of spun out into what HBO's done is um, really great. Uh, but no, I just want to see Tandy Newton uh, fucking shit
0: up. Oh, fuck possible. yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Oh, also, real um, quick,
0: uh, you know, r- yeah. writers stereotypically are like brooding, uh, cigarette smoking types that uh, lurk in the shadows. Are you like that?
1: I mean, like, aren't we all? Like, <laughs> we, uh, we all contain <laughs> multitudes. Writers are like whatever. Like, I'm sure we can all be cliche at times, but no, when yeah. writers are regular people. I'm sure. Like, look to your left, look to your right. You probably looked at two writers just now. Yeah, mm-hmm. writers in your family. Um, I think the idea of what it means to be like a writer has changed somewhat. Like, we are people who have a particular interest or passion for something um, that we have spun out into a career that lets us investigate and unpack, you know, those things that are tangentially related to that core interest in interesting and fascinating ways. And I think that that's ultimately what we are all kind of trying to do with our writing is to just like, learn and share information. And
0: you've done it. And you've done it well. And we appreciate you and your writing. That's why we had you on here. <laughs> <laughs> charles pulliam Moore, also known you want to shout out your socials uh
1: yeah okay you can find me uh on the tweet machine at charles pulliam that's p-u-l-l-i-a-m and that's it like i'm not really one of those <laughs> follow me
0: everywhere at <laughs> all right charles it's been fun thank you so much again was fun. It was super fun and uh yeah have a great day all right you, all right. good one. you too and for those listening thank you again for tuning in i'm um, excited to have you back next week thank you so much for listening to the writer experience if you enjoyed the episode today please leave a rating a review and a comment on itunes you can also check us out on instagram at writer experience and twitter and facebook at writer exp the writer experience is a samurai dinosaur production copyright 2018 all rights reserved music by kevin mcleod